0: Will you turn with me tonight to Exodus chapter 33, Exodus chapter 33, and we'll be looking tonight at verse 17 through verse 23. In the book of Genesis, we read that God commanded Adam and Eve, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the middle of the garden, you may not eat of it or you will surely die. But then Adam and Eve disobeyed, didn't they? God gave them a command, a specific command, but Adam and Eve disobeyed by doing the exact thing that God had commanded them not to do. Their responsibility before God was straightforward and simple. One command. Obey this one command. But they failed to do it. They failed to do it, and they failed to do it in the one and only area that God had given them. They violated the covenant. I think there's a parallel there with what we see in Exodus 32 and 33. God said to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, do not worship any other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image or any likeness of anything, whether in the heavens above or the earth beneath. But then what did the Israelites do? They disobeyed that command. And the Israelites disobeyed by doing the exact thing that God had commanded them not to do. Their responsibility before God was rather straightforward and simple. Don't worship other gods. Don't make any graven images or likenesses. But they failed to do it in the most fundamental and foundational command that God had given them. Literally the very first words of the covenant. They violated them. God came to Adam and Eve and confronted their sin. What was Adam's response? It was the woman that you gave to be with me. She gave me of the fruit and I ate. So God turns to Eve and what was Eve's response? It was the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, Moses came down from the mountain and he sees the golden calf and he confronts Aaron about what's going on. And what was Aaron's response? Don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Adam and Eve tried to deflect the blame away from themselves. Aaron tried to deflect the blame away from himself. But both Adam and Eve and the Israelites, they were guilty. They had violated the covenant. The Israelites were guilty of the most direct and in-your-face rebellion against God that you could imagine. God's holy wrath was ready to destroy them, but Moses interceded for them. Moses interceded on their behalf, and he pleaded with God. God heard that prayer. God heard the prayer of Moses, and he did not destroy the Israelites. That was Moses' first intercession. Then Moses goes down the mountain, and he sees the depravity of the Israelites for himself. He sees what they're engaged in, and he sees the false worship. And Moses becomes angry, and he throws down the tablets of stone. His holy anger mirrors the holy anger of God. And seeing that depravity for himself, Moses was compelled to return again to the mountain, to the presence of the Lord and intercede a second time on behalf of the Israelites to seek atonement and forgiveness for them. Moses in that passage says that he was even willing to sacrifice himself so that God would have mercy on his people. But God declared that time an an important principle of his justice. And he said, those who have sinned, they will die. God is just, he is righteous, and he will dispense that justice according to what people have done. And so God did dispense that justice. And a great plague went through the whole camp of the Israelites and killed many, many of the offenders. Then God, the holy and righteous God, gave an instruction to Moses and said, Moses, leave, I want you to break camp, I want you to leave here, leave this place, this holy mountain, get away from my presence. Go, lead your people to Canaan. I'll fulfill the promise, I'll bring them into the land of the Canaanites, the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, but I am not going with you. I'm not going with you, I'll send you a messenger, I'll send you an angel, but I am not going with you. If I were to go with you, then I would destroy the Israelites along the way because they would sin against me. But then Moses intercedes a third time before the Lord. And Moses pleads with God and says that if God is not going to go with them, then it is not worth going to Canaan at all. Essentially, Moses says, God, if we can't have you, then we don't want Canaan. If we can't have you, then we don't want your blessings and your gifts. It is your presence among us that makes us who we are, Moses said to God. It is what makes us distinct from all the nations in the world. So please go with us and lead us yourself to the land that you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's where we pick up in verse number 17 of Exodus 33. Because it says the Lord responded positively to that third intercession of Moses. And he agrees to go with the Israelite people. Verse 17 of Exodus 33 says, The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked. That is to go with you. Go with you to the land of promise. The Lord said, Because I'm pleased with you. And I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, tonight we thank you for your holy word and we thank you for the record that we have here of the request of your servant Moses to see your glory. This interaction between you and your servant, Moses, it reveals much to us about your holy character, about your greatness and your goodness to your people. Lord, teach us more about who you are in this passage. Help us to know you and to love you. We thank you for all this time that we have to learn from your truth. God, may your spirit teach and apply your word to our hearts. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Moses has successfully interceded before God three times already. He has interceded for God to not completely destroy the Israelites. And the Lord listened to that request. Moses pleaded with the Lord again to bring atonement and forgiveness to the Israelites. And the Lord did indeed show mercy on many of the Israelites, but he also did dispense justice to them as well. Then God said, you may go, I'll I'll have my messenger lead you to the land of Canaan, but I'm not going with you. Moses then intercedes again for the Lord to go with them, and he agrees for his presence to go with them. So three times Moses interceded before the Lord, and now Moses makes perhaps the boldest request that he has made yet. When he says, now please show me your glory. And what's interesting about this, the record here in verses 17 through 23, is that it's almost the opposite of what we've seen so far in the dialogue between the Lord and Moses. Because much of the dialogue between the Lord and Moses has been Moses speaking to the Lord. Moses praying, Moses pleading, Moses speaking about God's character and his attributes and the glory of his name and his promises to the patriarchs and pleading with him to go with his people and not destroy them. So a lot of it has been Moses talking to the Lord. But now we have four words in Hebrew from Moses to the Lord. He simply says, please show me your glory. And much of the dialogue now is the Lord speaking to him. The Lord responding to him, to this request. And so here we have a a request from Moses to see the Lord. I think what's going on here is he desires to know God. He desires to know him more fully. God had just said that he would send his presence with his people. Now Moses wants to see it. Lord, show me your glory. He wants to see God and his glory. And one of the questions of this passage, one of the things I think that's important to to think about in terms of interpreting this passage is, was this a legitimate question for Moses to ask? Is this a proper question? And is it coming from proper motives? I think, we could, if we were to look at it more negatively and, and look at this as an inappropriate request, maybe from inappropriate motives, one of the things that we might say is something like, well, maybe Moses here is falling into the same trap of the Israelites who wanted a visible God, a God that they could see. And so that's why they made the calf. Maybe Moses is falling into that same trap. And, and, and so he wants a God that he also can see maybe it's not enough for Moses to worship an invisible God maybe he needs some kind of a visible confirmation of the Lord's presence is this a defect in Moses' faith where he can't walk by sight or he can't walk by faith he has to walk by sight he has to see something with his own eyes we, I guess another negative way of understanding it is that maybe here this is Moses kind of bringing in some theology of the ancient world and maybe in some sense desiring to have some special revelation or some special knowledge of God that Moses can use to, to seek to get from, from God what he desires as we see in some of the other ancient eastern religions. But I don't think that would be the right way to understand this passage. I I don't think it would be right to understand this as a, as a negative in a negative way. I don't think this request of Moses is wrong and I don't think it's coming from wrong motives. I think what Moses is essentially asking is to know God more. I I think he's essentially uh, asking to know God in a deeper way. And, And I think, one of the reasons why we shouldn't interpret this in a negative way is that there's nothing in the text itself that points us in that direction. There's nothing in the text itself that says that God was angry with Moses for asking this question. In fact, as far as Moses is able, God grants the request and, and shows him at least as far as Moses is able his glory. And so I don't think this is a a wrong motivated or a, a wrong request at all. I think this is a desire on the part of Moses to know God. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way in his commentary. He says, Moses was not quite satisfied with God's assurance that he would go with his people. Although God had promised to bless him and to teach him his ways, it was not quite enough. A hymn says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. So knowing something about the greatness of the God he serves, Moses comes with the greatest request of all, please show me your glory. Seems to be that Moses had this desire to to know God and to understand him in a deeper way. Victor Hamilton puts it this way in his commentary. He says, When Moses requests to see God's glory, he may be asking for something other than what he has already seen. If you think about it, Moses has already seen God in different ways throughout his life, hasn't he? It began with the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He saw there some kind of a visible manifestation of God's presence. When he was up on the mountain, in, in the cloud, he saw a visible manifestation of God's presence. With the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, he saw some manifestation of God's presence. So it's not as if Moses has not seen theophanies or a, a, some representation of God's presence before, but it seems like he wants more than that. Victor Hamilton says he may be asking for something other than a cloud or another thunderbolt or another flock of quail. In light of God's word, you in verse 20, you are not able to see my face. One suspects that Moses has asked to see the face of God. It is not unreasonable for one with whom God speaks face to face to ask to see God's face. Earlier we saw where Moses would go into the tent of meeting and God would speak to him. And it says face to face, friend to friend. And so he's heard the voice of God as a friend to a friend, but now he wants to see the face of God. Victor Hamilton says, In these verses the language is very figurative, but it speaks of the longing for intimacy with the Holy One. Moses desires to know God more deeply. Do not just seek his hand, what he can give you, seek his face, himself. Moses is after something more observable, the very divine visage of God, himself. And I think in that desire of Moses, there is there is something that speaks to our desire to know God better as well. Now, clearly Moses was in a unique situation here, wasn't he? Moses is the unique called out leader of the Israelite people. He is the one who has an exclusive meeting with God on Mount Sinai. So Moses is clearly in a unique place here, but I think his heart, his desire to go deeper with God, to know God more, to see the face of God, I think that reflects a a good and and right response of God's people to know God more. It's like when Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says that I may know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul wanted to know Christ more, even if that meant going through sufferings like Christ went through sufferings. If that meant knowing Christ more. I think we see a similar uh, desire to, to see God, to know God from Philip in John chapter 14, verse eight, when Jesus is talking with his disciples and Philip says in John 14, verse eight, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. But Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so Philip had that desire as well. And I think it reflects a, a holy, healthy desire that we have as God's children to want to know God. I think this request of Moses reveals an instinctive desire that we as God's people share to know and to see our creator. This request of Moses, it reveals an instinctive desire that we as God's children share to know and to see our creator. But here's the problem. Our creator God is too infinitely glorious to be seen by finite mortal human beings. So I think the desire to know God and to see God is a healthy desire to go deeper with God. But the problem is, is that our creator God is too infinitely glorious to be seen by finite, mortal human beings. An older Jewish commentator, Umberto Casuto, put it this way. He said, the reply from God to Moses is Positive. Yet it contains a certain reservation. As far as a human being can understand. In other words, God is willing to show himself to Moses in as much, in as far as Moses is able to handle it. He he goes on to say, it is possible for you to hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you as one hears that of his friend. But as far as seeing is concerned... That is to say, in regard to the comprehension of the divine attributes, there is a boundary that man cannot cross. It is impossible for you to contemplate my attributes as one contemplates the face of his fellow who stands before him. You will be able to achieve no more than this. I will make all my goodness, all my virtues pass before you, but you cannot see my face. As you do that of your fellow man, nor know the workings of my attributes in the same way as you're able to know the reactions of human qualities of character for man shall not see me and live because to perceive the face of my glory is beyond the power of man's comprehension throughout the days of his life upon this earth. It is beyond our ability. What do we do with texts where it says that people saw God? For example, there's, there's a few passages in Exodus and even in Genesis where it says that people saw God. Do we have a contradiction here? For example, in the book of Genesis, we have a, an instance where Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob wrestled with God. But the issue there is he did not wrestle with the undisclosed glorious God of heaven. He wrestled with a man, right? He wrestled with a man, probably a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ. Godhead veiled in human flesh, if you will. In Exodus 24, verses 9 and 10, we have a description there where the elders of Israel are said to have seen the God of Israel. But if we look closer at the language of Exodus 24 we see that what actually happened is God took part of the cloud away and they looked up and they saw what looked like pavement of sapphire, where, where the feet of God are. In essence, one way of understanding it is they looked up and they saw the floor of heaven. But they did not actually see God face to face. We have Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he sees this grand vision of the glory of God filling the temple. But again, it does not say there that he saw the face of God. He saw some manifestation of the glory of God. Probably similar to what Moses is about to see here in Exodus. But he did not see the full, full, infinite manifestation of the glory of God. Because no human being is capable of seeing that. It is beyond our ability. One commentator says this, that when Moses requested to see the face of God, there's a problem. And the problem with doing that does not lie with God, but it lies with the human mortal. And here's the problem. The truth is not so much that the deity is invisible but that it is deadly for man to see him. Because God does not say, I am not able to show you that, but he says, you are not able to see that and live. So our creator God is too infinitely glorious to be seen by finite, mortal human beings. So what does God do then? God graciously answers the request of Moses insofar as Moses is able and God grants him a a limited, uh, accommodated, if you will, vision of the glory of God. God does graciously reveal what can be received and known by sinful, finite, mortal human beings. Inasmuch as Moses can receive it, God revealed it to Moses. And so he is still gracious to him. And he reveals as much to Moses as Moses can handle at that time. And what is that? What does God reveal to Moses? In verse 19, the Lord says to Moses, I will reveal my goodness. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. What is the Lord's goodness? Really, it's his attributes of benevolence. It's his attributes of grace and of mercy and of love. Essentially, what God is saying to Moses is, I can't show you the full manifestation of the glory of my face, but what I will show you and what I will declare to you is some of my character, some of who I am. I will reveal to you some of my attributes. And so he says, It is my goodness that will pass in front of you. What is the Lord's goodness? It is the Lord's goodness that protected Moses when he was born and his mother placed him in a little ark in the Nile River. That was the Lord's goodness. It was the Lord's goodness that raised up Moses to deliver the Israelite people from Egypt. It was the Lord's goodness that caused them to cross over on dry ground through the Red Sea and be protected from Pharaoh and his army. It was the Lord's goodness that supplied water for them in the wilderness. It was his goodness that supplied bread, manna for them in the wilderness. It was God's goodness that did not destroy them when they were bowing down before a golden calf. God says to Moses, I'll let my goodness, my attributes of goodness pass in front of you. And you may get a glimpse of them. So he will reveal his goodness, but he also says he will reveal his name in verse 19. I will proclaim my name, Yahweh. Well, here's the thing. Moses already knows that name, doesn't he? Moses already knows the name of the Lord. He already knows Yahweh. So what is, what is the Lord saying here when he says, I will proclaim my name? I think what he is saying is, as I allow my goodness to pass in front of you, that is very closely associated with my name. In other words, the name of the Lord is so closely associated with his attributes that they're hardly distinguishable. I will declare to you who I am, essentially is what God is saying when he says, I will declare my name. I will declare who I am, my attributes of goodness. So he will reveal the essence of his goodness to Moses. And I think also in connection with the name of God is verse 19 when he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion to whom I will be I will show compassion. In other words, an essential aspect of who God is, his identity, when he proclaims his name, an essential aspect of his being is God's right to show compassion and mercy to whom he wills. Paul picks up on this language in Romans 9 and applies it to the doctrine of election and says, this is God's right as creator to show mercy and compassion to whom he wills. Again, quoting from Umberto Cassiro, he puts it this way. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And the meaning of that is this. The exercise of these qualities depends entirely on my will. You may know that I'm compassionate and gracious and, And that I love to go beyond the strict letter of the law, but the decision to act according to these virtues is at all times in my discretion. And it is impossible for you to know when or if I shall act thus. If I were constantly to let the quality of mercy prevail over that of justice and were to forgive every sinner, I should not be a righteous judge. And every man would permit himself all kinds of wickedness in the assurance that he would be forgiven. I shall be gracious and compassionate if it pleases me, when it pleases me, and for the reasons that please me. That is God's right to show mercy and compassion to whom and when and if he wills. And that's an essential part of his character But also we see in verses 21 to 23 that what God also graciously reveals to Moses is not only his goodness, his name, and his sovereign, gracious character, but he also reveals a limited, partial view of his glory. He gives Moses what he is able to handle, and he gives Moses what is sufficient for him. He says literally in verse 21, there's a place here where you may stand on a rock and when my glory passes by i will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until i have passed by probably the idea of of the lord literally taking moses and placing him maybe in a cave in the side of a mountain, and the Lord shields Moses from the full frontal impact of the, the glory of the Lord. But then as he passes by, he takes his hand away, and Moses catches just the remnants, the the back, the trail, if you will, of God's glory passing over him. And that in itself was enough to keep Moses' face shining For days upon days when he came down from the mountain. Just the little limited revelation of the glory of God was enough to keep his face shining so much that they made Moses put a veil over his face. As the moon reflects the light of the sun, Moses' face was reflecting the glory of the Lord and just a small part of the glory of the Lord. But the Lord gives him inasmuch as he can give him with the limitations that Moses has as a mortal man. What are some things that, that this passage teaches us? I think one thing that this passage teaches us is clearly that our God is more infinitely holy and glorious and majestic than we can imagine. Our God is more holy, infinite, majestic than we can imagine in a sense Moses's request is right it comes from good motives when he says Lord show me your face show me your glory but Moses does not fully understand the full impact of what he's asking for and so the Lord has to say you can't see my face but you can see a limited glimpse of my glory as it passes over you that's how infinitely glorious our Lord is I think this passage also shows us, I think, a right desire to know our God. A right and a healthy desire to know our God, to know him better. And here's the thing, what God does not give to Moses in the form of the visible, he gives to him in the form of his words and his proclamations. And that's important for us to remember that that even though we may not see the visible manifestation of God, he has given us something incredibly important, and that is he's given us his words. He's given us his proclamations. And the Lord determined not to give Moses the full view of his glory, but the Lord did reveal to Moses through words aspects of his character and his attributes. And so it's it's right for us to desire to know our God more. We also need to be reminded, I think, that that ultimately the revelation of God culminates in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Ultimately, the revelation of God culminates in Jesus Christ. When Philip said, "Lord, uh, Jesus, just show us the Father, and that will be sufficient for us," Jesus says, "Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father." John chapter 1 in verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God at any time but the one and only Son. The only begotten Son of God, He has made Him known. He has revealed Him. John chapter 1 says that when Jesus came, we saw Him and we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of our glorious God. And I think lastly, uh, one thing that we can take away from this passage is that God reveals to us what we are able to handle and what we need. God reveals to us, he gives to us what we are able to handle and what we need. So, when he's given us this word, this word may not answer every single question that we have. You know, People ask questions of me sometimes of like what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God, what it's going to be like in heaven, and honestly, I can't answer all of those questions because the Bible doesn't fully reveal them to us. There are some questions that the Bible doesn't answer, but what it does give us is everything that we need. It's fully sufficient. And and it's interesting how God, throughout the course of history, has progressively revealed himself to his people. You ever ever think about that? that? That God progressively reveals himself to his people as they are able to receive it. So God doesn't say to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, here's the whole thing. I'm just going to lay the whole thing out for you and give them Genesis through Revelation. It builds, doesn't it? It builds layer upon layer. There's a progressive revelation that that builds on top of each other. And and we as human beings are only able to handle parts of this revelation at a time. The Lord knows that. And the Lord dispenses it in a way that is right and appropriate for us to receive it. And also he gives us what we need for the time. And so we read in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 that, that the Lord has given us his word and it is sufficient for us. It is sufficient for doctrine, for correction, for teaching and righteousness. It's, it's what we need to be the people of God. So let us seek God. Let us seek him with all of our heart, soul and mind. But let us also be content with what he chooses to reveal to us and with what he chooses to give us. And let us be reminded of the glory and the majesty of our God. And may that inspire us to worship him in a deeper way. Let's bow in prayer together. Our father, our God, we thank you for your gracious character that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who is full of goodness. And you revealed that goodness to Moses when you let that goodness pass in front of him and you revealed your compassionate and merciful character. God, thank you that you're a God who shows mercy to sinners. Thank you that you have in your wisdom and your sovereignty. You have placed your grace and your mercy upon us. Thank you that we can be called your children. God, help us to know you more. Help us to desire to go deeper in our understanding of who you are, to go deeper in your word, to commune with you in prayer, to meditate on your perfections and on your wisdom And Lord, we look forward to the day when we can see with with great fulfillment your glory as your Son, Jesus Christ, returns for us. Lord, bless us as your people. Give us hope. Give us steadfastness. And Lord, may we seek you each and every day of our lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.